This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, a survey of one Christchurch high school recorded alarming instances of sexual assault and harassment. Complaints are now being investigated by police, and breaking the silence seems to have had an impact. But some journalists already know that encouraging victims of violence and assault to talk also runs the risk of re-victimising them. This week we hear from one reporter with first-hand experience. Also, monster waves and polar blasts, like we've had this past week, makes for great news for the news media. But would we really believe them if we didn't see their reporters on the spot getting soaked and frozen? Is it cold where you are? <laughs> Tēnā kue, Chris. That's uh, yes. But first this week, how the heat was turned up on hate speech. If you're playing the game, and this is on the quiet, if you're playing the game with your family, would you allow the 400 words? Oh, look, I think it's a, uh, I think it's silly. You know, you can't govern how people play a game of Scrabble, how they put together their words. That was News Talk ZB Drive host Heather Duplessy Allen last Tuesday grilling her guest, politics pundit Shane Tapo, on how he plays Scrabble at his place. But why? Well, according to some reports, the games maker Mattel and Collins Dictionary were working towards banning more than 400 potentially offensive terms from the game, including ethnic slurs. Now, you can, of course, use whatever words and Scrabble rules you want if you're playing at home, but competition Scrabble is a different story, and last week New Zealand Scrabble Association President Howard Warner told News Talk ZB this. I could be playing against a, um, a little old... Um uh, church-going Maori woman who plays against the N-word right. or the C-word. Well, neither of us are going to raise an eyebrow because we're just thinking about the points and the position on the board and that sort of thing. Well, that might explain why Scrabble has never caught on as a live TV event. That interview was prompted by what was billed as an investigation last week by the online site Newsroom titled Hate Speech versus Scrabble. And in two impassioned articles, New Zealand's 16th-ranked Scrabble player Rick Ascroft listed some of the disputed words, many of which were pretty obscure and at times downright puzzling, before he declared, hate speech is not a set of words. And he's right about that, but giving slurs and swear words a swerve in a game isn't really anyone's idea of serious hate speech. Hate speech has become a hot topic in the media this week because of proposed changes to the law. And articles about that were clogging up the trending list on News Talk ZB's website last Tuesday. Hence, Heather Duplessy-Allen seizing on the alleged censoring of Scrabble slurs that afternoon. Though her guest Shane the Poe said on Tuesday they were wasting their time. Well, I think it is a nonsense nah. argument, but no, no, I, I think it's wrong to equate that nonsense with the work that I think we need to put on. We, we need to put it in terms of, in, in terms of the freedom of speech issue that we're having. I think, I, I think it's an absolute false equivalent. Um, it's not. I'm not even making an equivalence out of it. Well, no, because like, like a lot of the real flashpoints in this debate, it concerns elite sport, which is world yeah. scramble championships. And leaving aside whether Scrabble really qualifies as sport, as fellow guest Ben Thomas said there, News Talk ZB's airing of the issue didn't really resolve a lot. I mean, like, for example, fart, not allowed. Would you use Farts it? not allowed? Farts and boobies. Well, well, boobies is... Is that a contraction? I don't even know. I, don't I would have thought You're fart was definitely No, allowed. I'm with you. That's if you outrageous. want to get the 11-year-old playing Scrabble, you need to use that word. Thank you for that, both of you. Really appreciate it. Well, never mind 11-year-olds playing Scrabble. What are the grown-ups in the room saying and doing about hate speech? Well, you won't get much of a Scrabble score out of the name Karen, but National Party leader Judith Collins wrung some political points out of it when she raised this question on Twitter. 
Will calling a middle-aged white woman a Karen now be a crime under Jacinda Ardern's law? Well, the answer was no, and there is no law yet. Of course, it's just a discussion document about proposed law changes, something a trained lawyer like Judith Collins would surely know. But it prompted the Prime Minister to hit back at Judith Collins in Parliament on Wednesday like this. And I also, as it happens, disagree with the member's statement on Twitter that somehow it will become illegal to call someone a Karen. That is absolutely incorrect, and I apologise. That means these laws will not protect that member from such a claim. (laughs) Well, that's a good gag, and a video of that then surged into the most viewed stories list on stuff.co.nz. But it didn't really elevate the debate that the Prime Minister said, just moments later in Parliament, that we really need to have now about these reforms. And she reminded the House that reform had been called for by the Royal Commission into the Christchurch terrorist attack in 2019. And the same day, coincidentally, police said they received three separate reports about threats to the Al Noor Mosque in the past fortnight. Uh, existing laws date back to 1993, and several countries have made similar law changes in recent years to take account of changes in technology, terrorism trends, and increased diversity in population, faiths, and beliefs. And at the moment, the Proposals Against Inciting Violence and Hatred, published by the Ministry of Justice, extend protection to religious groups, the rainbow community, and they also take into account things like age and disability. But the Justice Minister, Chris Farfoy, made it far from clear what the threshold is for harm and hatred if the Crimes Act is to be amended when he appeared on NewsHub Nation last weekend and the political editor at NewsHub, Tova O'Brien, hit him with some hypotheticals, including this one. So if I write an opinion piece that says Jacinda Ardern is a communist or a dictator, could I be stung for hate speech? Well, let's not use that. Let's use something else theoretical. But we don't, uh, we do not want this process to be seen in any way uh, that we're uh, stymieing people to give their opinion about the people that inhabit this place. Um, there are some people. So who, I can write that opinion piece well, and, and uh, not. You, you've got the freedom to express that um, both as media, um, um, but y- your intent might not be to incite hatred against us. And who decides what my intent was? Well, um, that would be the police. After the Prime Minister appeared to contradict her Justice Minister on the AM show the next morning, Tova O'Brien did write an opinion piece, though she didn't test the waters by calling Jacinda Ardern a commie dictator. But she did bluntly say that Jacinda Ardern was completely and utterly wrong about her own hate speech law. Though there is, of course, no law yet, just a proposal, as Tova O'Brien herself acknowledged when she went on to write this. Not only is the Prime Minister wrong about the basic facts of the proposal, she was wrong to shut down debate on hate speech on the AM show this morning with her glib, inaccurate dismissals. And Tova O'Brien then went on to criticise the Prime Minister for accusing the media of trivialising the need for the law change by questioning it in the way that they have. It is insulting and irresponsible to pit journalists or anyone who questions or debates the legislation as somehow being in opposition to the needs of the victims of March the 15th. Meanwhile, a predecessor at TV3 as political editor, Duncan Garner, then joined in too, telling his viewers that the government have stuffed up the changes and he said we must fight this restriction of freedom of speech. It should never be against the law to offend anyone. Heavens would be out of jobs and all in jail. And that same day, the Herald's senior political correspondent Audrey Young also said the Prime Minister doesn't understand what's proposed, in particular that political opinion could be covered by the proposals as they're drafted now. And she went on to say... 
She and Farfoy would have a much better chance of persuading the public if they A, got the facts right, and B, were prepared to discuss hypothetical examples so the public had a good idea of what is intended by the proposals. And that's a harsh verdict, but a fair one, and not harmful or hateful, obviously. And Judith Collins had clearly read those articles. What is her response to Tova O'Brien, who wrote, quote, Jacinda Ardern is wrong about her own hate speech law, completely and utterly wrong. Not only is the Prime Minister wrong about the basic facts of the proposal, she is wrong to shut down debate on hate speech, end quote. But unimpressed with much of the media comment on the issue was barrister Stephen Price, a specialist in media law and also a qualified journalist. On his own website, he wrote this. In their anxiousness to ridicule and discredit hate speech laws and excite contempt against them, they seem happy to distort the debate. Do hate speech laws need hate speech protection? Stephen Price also went on to say the discussion paper literally says several times the government wants to hear from you, which is obviously the opposite of shutting down debate. He said Tova O'Brien was wrong to say that the proposed threshold is as low as insulting someone and Duncan Garner need not fear jail or the sack for merely insulting and or offending people. To be criminal, said Stephen Price, someone's speech would have to be threatening or abusive and aimed at having a particular effect, like inciting or normalising hatred or violence. It would also have to be directed at a specific group and the courts would then have to overcome the protection for free speech in the Bill of Rights Act and then the Attorney-General would have to consent to a prosecution. Stephen Price's parting thought was this. I'll be interested to see whether the media will be so consumed by its fears of excessive uses of the proposed law that it never asks questions from the other direction about whether the law will in fact be too ineffective. Angst among the media about hate speech laws had already surfaced before this week. About a month ago, former New Zealand Herald Editor-in-Chief Gavin Ellis warned how this is interpreted will have a major impact on freedom of expression and of the media. Hate is a word that should only be used after spelling out exactly what it means, he said. Now, the heat over hate speech of this past week shows there's plenty of public and media interest and that the government and the media alike both need to be better at explaining the proposed changes before refining them. This morning, serious sexual assaults, including group rape have been disclosed by students at Christchurch Girls High School in a whole-of-school survey conducted last month. Nearly 60% of survey respondents said they'd been harassed, a quarter of them more than 10 times. 20 students described being raped by individuals or groups. We'll find out what prompted Christchurch Girls to survey all of their students, discuss what happens now and what this says about what young students are putting up with elsewhere around the country as well. That was Catherine Ryan kicking off 9 to noon last Monday with a confronting story. And one reason that Christchurch Girls High School surveyed its students in the first place was that they'd protested against sexual harassment back in March but were turned away from Christchurch Boys High by the police. Now on Monday, when that survey was released, police from a specialist team were on site at Christchurch Girls High and the principal, Christine O'Neill, told 9 to noon this. It's one of the most... Concerning things about this survey uh, findings has been the utter silence around everything and the normalisation. So today is a day for beginning to lift 
that silence so staff know if the students want to talk, let them talk. And two days after that, Catherine Ryan kicked off her show with another development. Well, first, three students from Christchurch Girls High School have made formal complaints to the police of incidents of sexual assault. So breaking the silence that Principal Christine O'Neill referred to there has already had an impact, it seems. But some journalists also know that encouraging victims of violence and assault to talk can be fraught. If it's done well, compelling accounts of wrongdoing are brought to public attention in the media, and sometimes wrongs can even be put right. But there's also the very real risk of re-victimising people and making things worse, as Hayden Donnell reports. I had so many people advise me, like, why don't you go to the media? Why don't you, you know, do this, that and the other thing? And I didn't, I just didn't want to. I think because it had taken me so much courage to do this in the first place, and I was so concerned with how it would affect him. really traumatising to relive. Exactly. I didn't, I just wanted to move on. That was Taryn Flintoff talking about her decision not to go to the media to reveal the abusive behaviour of her ex-partner, former National Party candidate Jake Bazant. Notably, when she did decide to air her story, she chose her own podcast as the medium. Flintoff would later go on to give media interviews, but it's understandable she was initially keen to tell her story another way. Our news organisations haven't always distinguished themselves with their sensitive handling of sexual assault and other abuse allegations. In 2013, Radio Live hosts Willie Jackson and John Tamahedi carried out a widely derided interview with a friend of one of the victims of the Roastbusters gang. They asked the woman, identified as Amy, why she and her friends had been drinking and why they'd been out late at night. Jackson questioned whether Amy's then underage friends could have been raped if they consented to sex or even if they thought the Roastbusters were good looking. Last year, former Magic Talk host Sean Plunkett insinuated he would reveal the identity of a woman who made a sexual assault allegation against a Labour Party staffer if she didn't explain to him why he shouldn't. More recently, NewsHub ran a story about alleged offending committed by an employee at a number one shoe warehouse in Palmerston North. It was criticised for describing the man's victims in terms like fit brunette and reprinting photos taken non-consensually by the offender. One of the people who criticised that article was Stuff's Kirsty Johnston, who said its focus on the man's shoe fetish obscured the seriousness of his actions, which included an online confession to a serious sexual assault. Johnston and others at Stuff, including Me Too section editor Ali Moore, have been working to publish victim-centred stories on issues like sexual abuse and harassment and family violence. She spoke to me about how she goes about her work and what pitfalls journalists can avoid when covering these types of stories. Kia ora, Kirsty, and welcome to Media Watch. Hello, Hayden. So recently we had a big parliamentary scandal involving abuse where a former national candidate was impersonating his ex-girlfriend online. The woman at the heart of it, Taryn Flintoff, decided to air her complaint on a podcast, not through the media or anything like that. And I wondered why you think victims like Taryn might not trust the media to tell their stories. I think historically, definitely the media haven't done victims a service. Particularly these kind of victims, by which I mean women, have really been hung out to dry by the media. They've been targeted. Like if you think of all those kind of red top newspapers and the general kind of mid-90s vilification of women. I mean, if I was a victim, I would be very sceptical of mainstream media generally. You try to do it differently and practice victim-centred reporting, and can you explain what that is? 
I mean, if you think about someone who was a victim, they've already been through enough. And as a reporter, you don't want to make their life worse. Because I think that's a very easy thing to do. And even when people come to me and they want to tell their stories, I definitely get a feeling a lot of the time, like, are you sure you want to do this? And I think as a more junior reporter, I wouldn't have voiced that. But now I definitely ask them and I tell them the risks because I think it's fair and the right thing to do to let people know that it could go badly. Do you have a set of principles for what constitutes a victim-centred reporting? The first one would be being straight up and telling them, this is what it's going to look like, you know, this is how it's going to feel, these are the risks for you. And then I think also allowing them to have some input into how their story is told. For, like, I mean, there's really little things that you can do to help people. I mean, if they need a pseudonym, you can let them choose the pseudonym. Or, you know, if they've giving you a full interview and you've chosen some quotes out of it to let them know how you're going to use their quotes and how you're going to frame them. It doesn't always mean that you will change things. It's just to let them know so that when their story comes out, the way that it's presented isn't a complete surprise to them. Because I've definitely in the past taken people's stories, written them up, and then they've felt kind of not okay with the way I've published it and or just been surprised by it I think I and even like not victims but say families of victims like I remember one time I did a story about a woman who had been killed it was kind of like a cold case murder and I interviewed her brother who was desperately trying to find you know what had happened to her and in the story I wrote that she'd been a prostitute and he didn't know that like he only found that out from my reporting And that's not fair. So I think that kind of thing is what you would be trying to avoid, just to make it easier on the people who are in your stories. Let's try and ground this in some actual practical examples because there's been a lot of reporting good and bad recently. So there was a News Hub report recently on what it called a foot fetishist who allegedly committed a series of offences while employed at the number one shoe warehouse. And you had real problems with how that story was constructed. And I'm just wondering what those were. Yeah, that story had a lot of issues, didn't it? But I think mainly it kind of perpetuated the same kind of behaviour that it was vilifying. I mean, I remember it called people like a blonde and a brunette. And it showed the pictures of the abuse, like the the foot fetish pictures that were posted online. It reposted them. So in some way it was like recreating the same kind of gross, sexist, misogynist things that it was allegedly saying was bad in the story. So Um, it kind of reveled in the details, kind of. Yeah, it was like titillating. It was titillating. And I think if you're going to tell a story about, like, sexual abuse, like maybe you don't want to glorify or, like, sexualize that abuse because you're just, I guess, re-victimizing people or perpetuating the same thing. Probably one of the indications that it wasn't written quite the right way was that despite carrying allegations of of really harmful abuse, it became kind of a joke online. Yeah, it immediately became the bad of the office jokes, like, oh, the foot fetishist. And I just read it and thought, God, imagine being one of those women. What could have been done to ensure that it was told better in a victim-centred way? just be more straight like all of the writing around it was very inflammatory and very kind of weird and descriptive and you don't need to use language like that you can just tell the story in a sensitive way and also I I think they did um, interview victims but they put them really far down the story and I don't think they really captured how those people felt 
it's not just because that's good for victims and that's like a good human sensible thing to do, but audience resonate with it. That's the point of reporting is that you try and show your audience like why that was bad or how that felt for somebody. Because that's what humans want. That's why we put photos in stories, right? They Humans connect with other humans. So even at a basic reporting level, that's a good way to tell a story. The second recent incident that I wanted to bring up uh, was a dispute between Chris Bishop of National and Trevor Mallard in Parliament over sexual assault allegations made against a Parliament staffer. In 2019, Trevor Mallard falsely accused a man of rape and later apologised. The Speaker's defamation proceedings costing taxpayers more than $330,000. Last night, he accused that same man of serious sexual assault. I believe the victims and I believe the police. Now, people have to make a choice. Do they believe the victim the results of the independent internal investigation and the police? Or do they believe the person on which Mr Bishop relies? If he believes what he says to be true, he will say it outside Parliament. you remember that exchange? I sure do. What was striking to you about it? Uh, I guess it was exactly the opposite of what we were just talking about. It was like the victims of this idea, this concept that they hadn't even bothered to to centre, they were just kind of using them, I guess, as like a political football. It was more about the fight between these two men, both of which had quite a lot of seemingly pride on the line. Yeah, and I mean, everyone knows those two don't like each other. So it was just kind of gross for these women to be used in in that way. We've been talking about victim-centred reporting. How do you balance that? against the journalistic convention of needing to tell both sides of the story? Well, I think um, historically we have done that to a degree that is kind of like a false balance, I would say. From my perspective, if you've got a woman saying, I was sexually abused by this person, and you have a man saying, oh, well, no, I didn't, I just looked at her, um, and she's now gone off the deep end, I don't necessarily think that's balance you know or that's fear this kind of idea of equivalency needs to be weighted that you can't just let an abusive person just say oh I didn't do that that's her fault I don't think that's balance I think it's our job to get closer to the truth not to just let everyone have their say in this kind of crazy melee of accusations we're seeing it in the vaccine debate you know there's new I guess norms about how you treat that like do you let people who are actively denying science have as much space or as much time in the media I feel like these stories are very similar even if uh, people have concerns that they won't be treated fairly we actually have an incredibly strict defamation law that reporters have to overcome or deal with before they print anything Yeah, and it's not just defamation law that would guide you as a reporter. I mean, I know that personally I'm constantly asking myself, is this fair, is this fair, is this fair? We inherently are concerned about it all the time. And just because stories don't look like they have traditionally doesn't mean that we're not going through that same process. These are people you're representing that traditionally haven't had the power. They haven't had the power in their relationships, and now that they're actually sharing their experience of abuse, they also encountered difficulties and Mm. power imbalances. So you did a story recently about Mrs P, who 
was falsely convicted of perjury, spent a year in home detention, and had basically a nightmare experience with the court system. Yeah, I think the court system definitely silences people. I mean, there's rules. There's a rule in the court that says you can't like identify vulnerable people that are involved. And so that really constrains what we can do, what victims can do, you know, and the way that that's interpreted by lawyers and by the judiciary is like sometimes wrong. I mean, women are told that they can't even show their court documents to other people because that's breaching that rule. You know, they are scared that they're going to be punished for speaking out. And it's not fair, like, these stories do need to be heard. Um, and it's not fair to, to kind of ramp up that fear further. Newsroom is being prosecuted at the moment uh, by Crown Law for its reporting on a reverse uplift. You- yeah, so that's this breaching the same rule that I was talking about that says that you can't identify vulnerable parties. How much of a chilling effect does that rule have? I mean, it, it's huge, yeah. People are terrified of it because you've got to remember that these people, often they have judgments, um, they have, you know, rulings about their children, for example, where and care their children are. And they fought and they fought and they fought to have their children in the care of somebody who's safe. And they feel like if they breach that or if they do something to upset the court, they can be dragged back and maybe those orders will be rewritten. I mean, it's very complicated, but I do think that, victims who want to speak out will see that story and at least hesitate, if not more. Just on a personal note, is is this sort of work sustainable? Writing about violence, do you mean, and trauma? Yes. I don't think it is long-term. I think you kind of have to maybe dip in and out of it. It's a lot to hold people's stories and to worry about them all the time because you do, you, you think... Are they going to be okay? And often these victims, they will they will dip in and out of wanting to do a story, right? And I think if we're talking about victim-centered reporting, some of the time that means not reporting. Like sometimes people just don't want to tell their stories. And I think 10 years ago I would have, you know, had people who said, oh, I'm not really comfortable with doing this, and I would have tried to talk them around. And now I just leave them. Like that's their choice. If they want to tell it, they will tell it at a time that's okay for them. And, you know, I think that is something that, you know, increasingly we need to think about, you know. Like take your ego out of it. Take your desire to tell the story out of it and just think about what's best for that person. What can media organisations do, if anything, really, to actually make your type of work sustainable for a longer period of time? Uh, I think, I mean, they're quite good now. Where they provide counselling and that kind of thing. And there's not as much rushing. Like, I remember with the Mrs P story, it took a while to get over the line. Like, um, she got nervous and that kind of thing. And one of the editors said to me, you know, she is more important. She's more important because I think previously the imperative would have been about the deadline and getting it on the page and getting that story out. But um, that showed a real change in attitude. That's stuff reporter Kirsty Johnston talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about reporting that centres on victims. Some didn't get the message or ignored it. Emergency services scrambling to search for two kayakers thought missing in Wellington Harbour. 
They were found safe in Lower Hutt after braving water that even our ferries didn't. That was News Hub reporter Mitchell Alexander on News Hub at 6 last Tuesday reporting on two kayakers who found themselves in the headlines that morning because the warning of big waves that later created a local state of emergency on Wellington's south coast didn't put them off their daily paddle. And earlier in the day, TVNZ News actually spoke to one of the pair who wasn't phased, but he was frozen. We live for this stuff and yeah. Um, yeah, just getting out before work and, um, and enjoying it. It's a really good surf out there and we play it safe. I can hardly talk, I'm so freezing. <laughs> My mouth's frozen. And that attitude made those two a hot topic on talk radio. Wellington Mayor Andy Foster told News Talk ZB this. It's the sort of thing you go, what on earth are you thinking? That's absolutely nuts being out in those kind of weather conditions. You're putting yourself at risk and you're also putting other people at risk doing that kind of thing. But ZB's talk hosts had the aquatic adventurers' backs. Yeah, let them live. Yeah, totally with you, man. We are, a, we are a bunch of people as a country who love the great outdoors. I don't know why we're being such sissies about it. We were once a nation of go-getters. We were the nation that produced a man who went to climb the tallest mountain in the world before anyone else did. Uh, we're the country of adventurers, of explorers, of risk-takers, boundary-breakers. We were the country that took the number eight wire and did so much stuff with it, it became part of the way we speak. That was until we decided to become wet blankets. But never mind the go-getters or the wet blankets. What about the wet and cold reporters told to go and get the story this past week? Hayden Donnell now with their story. It's definitely snowing. Ladies and gentlemen. That's One News reporter Thomas Mead delivering the news we all wanted to know this week. It was indeed snowing where he was in Canterbury, but that wasn't all. It also snowed in places like Wellington and Taranaki, while in Auckland it got quite cold. Most of us dealt with the bad weather in the usual ways, putting extra blankets on the bed, drinking Milo, and in the case of those living in Wellington's character villas, contracting a severe respiratory illness. For those working in the media, though, a different response kicked into gear. A snowy veil descended over their minds. In place of words like cold, wet or windy, a new vernacular emerged. They started to speak the language of wild weather. A polar blast closes roads and schools in the south. You've been tracking this chilly blast, Dan. Where is it at right now? The wintry blast affecting livestock. It will be hard to find a place today where the polar blast can be escaped. The polar blast, the polar blast came from the south. The polar blast is slowly headed north. The latest on the polar blast. The pole was blasting, the gales were lashing, the monster waves were battering, the snows were flurrying. Any normal person would have taken the hint and stayed indoors until nature calmed down. Not so the nation's reporters, who instead beat a path straight into the most miserable places in the country, where they proceeded to film themselves developing frostbite. On News Hub, Kayleigh Callahan earned this compliment from anchor Mike McRoberts after getting through an obviously difficult live cross from Wellington's windswept south coast. Uh, emergency accommodation available if that is needed. Now these weather warnings are in place until at least midday tomorrow. There's nothing else that authorities can really do apart from hunker down and wait it out tonight. Well done, Kayleigh. Thank you. His colleague Juliet Speedy had to stifle a sniff as she reported live from Canterbury's Port Hills. Well, that's exactly what happened with full snow falling right down to sea level and landing on the beach. At least the audience could hear what she was saying. Morning Report's Harry Locke wasn't quite so intelligible. In Ofero Bay, so that's on Wellington's south coast, just along from Island Bay. Now, let me just, I'm just going to open the door and nip outside just so you can get the flavour. I apologise if you can't hear me very well. 
of that, actually, <laughs> apart from the wind. Over on One News at Midday, Abby Wakefield was trying to operate in similar conditions to only slightly greater success. Chris, it's very cold, it's very windy and it's just started to hail out here in Oviedo Bay, but the residents are quite nervous as they prepare for potential evacuations tonight as emergency officials say that there may potentially be up to six metre swells. These windswept pieces to camera are far from isolated incidents. They stand in a long tradition of news organisations sending journalists into the most stormy places in the country to confirm to audiences the weather where they are is in fact not good. Last year MediaWatch sent out an appeal for journalists to reveal their worst wild weather reporting experiences. Thomas Mead recounted the time he was buried up to his chest in snow. Former TV3 producer Phil Corkery admitted to taking the hood off reporter Emma Cropper's raincoat so she'd look really soaked and miserable. A trick, he said, worked a treat. Meanwhile, former radio reporter Tom Furley said he'd fallen down an open drain while covering a flash flood in Unihunga. There's possibly a case that sending these reporters out into snowstorms to be blasted, lashed, soaked, ravaged and drenched is borderline irresponsible. In any other workplace, these incidents would probably breach health and safety regulations. But while weather reporting does serve a purpose, even if it's only illustrating to viewers what would happen if they responded to weather warnings in the most stupid possible way. That demonstration could come from the journalists themselves, as was the case with this CBS crew taken out by a rogue wave while reporting on 2012's Hurricane Sandy. OK, whoa! Whoa! Hey, hey guys! Whoa! Wow. Or it could come from the public, as in this memorable report from News Hub's Sam Farrell, who interviewed a woman out walking in 2018's Cyclone Fehi. At any point have you feared for your safety today, or has it just been kind of just a bit of a different commute? Well, I was a bit worried going under the boot of car was because like, they look a bit dodgy when they fall down, and I was like, that's sprinting under those. Covering these stories is also a rite of passage for reporters. Without them, journalism is mostly just reading reports and occasionally ringing boring people for comment. When your job can feel like a parched desert, endless and monotonous, sometimes a polar blast can really freshen things up. Hayden Donnell there on the reporters who walk through the storm and stay there to bring us the news about those weather blasts, whether they want to or not. Well, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show and then back with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.